0: Hey, it's Zaki. In this episode, we sought out a voice with a unique story. We sat down with Yehuda Miklaf, a once Catholic monk, now religious Jew who lives in Jerusalem. We discussed his past experiences with Catholicism, his path to Judaism, and his life in Israel today, including his membership to the Freemason community. You're listening to Israel Underground. Everyone has their own relationship with their religion and the land that they live in, their own perspective and journey, but some people just seem to have more stops along the way. While many people convert to Judaism, yours truly included, there are often assumptions made regarding their path to it. We wanted to break down some of those walls and share a particularly multifaceted story of someone who's had a foot in many doors of religion and life in Israel. His story includes a year of silent meditation, the social order of Freemasonry, the international language of Esperanto, and his inspired connection to Judaism. So we are here today with Yehuda Miklaf, who has a very uh, multifaceted story that we are very excited to hear about. Um, First of all, Yehuda, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're most welcome.
0: So first things first, what do you do and where are you from?
1: Well, uh, I'm an artistic bookbinder and a very small town in Nova Scotia, Canada, called Annapolis Royal, the first permanent European settlement in Canada. I was born there in 1942, and I lived there until I left in 1960. I was a member of a Catholic family, part Irish, part French Canadian. And when I was 18, I went to New York and joined the Franciscan Order, and entered the seminary to study for the priesthood.
0: So tell me a little bit about your experience as a priest, and then I think I I have some questions for you about kind of how you got there.
1: Yeah, I never actually became a priest. What happened is I I did my last year of uh, high school there, and then there's a novitiate year, which is basically uh, silence and meditation, uh, no academic studies, uh, up in the mountains, in seclusion. And it was um, it was a very interesting experience. I, I particularly liked the year of silence and meditation. Mm-hmm. I was very drawn to that sort of life at the time. Uh, I didn't enjoy university at all. I'm not a, sort of an academic person. I'm more of a hands-on craftsperson. Uh, but while I was there i became interested in judaism mm-hmm. and i don't really know how it happened it was kind of an emotional thing uh stru- i was struck by uh the actually actually the hebrew alphabet it seemed to recall something some sort of memory which i can't really explain whether it was reincarnation or what i don't know but uh it it had a very profound effect on me and and uh Every time I heard anything about Judaism or Hebrew or anything like that, my ears perked up. And over the few years that I was there, I immersed myself in it. I learned a little bit of Hebrew. And uh, when I went, when we went down to New York, uh, some of my classmates would go to a show and some would go out for a big dinner. And I, and, uh, I used to go to shul and, and uh, talk to rabbis. I had no intention in the, at that time of converting i was simply in, very very interested in it and the reason i left there was not to um i didn't intend to leave the seminary to give up my my idea of being a priest i just didn't like that particular lifestyle and i wanted something a little bit more uh contemplative shall we say
0: i want to um I think before we move on to the depths of your experience uh, and conversion, because I'm very interested in hearing about that, I want to understand a little more just about that. Specifically, tell me a little bit about the exclusionary experience, because I think for the layperson, when they hear about this kind of experience of, you know, a year of silent meditation, it conjures up a very kind of romantic idea of what that is. So can you, I guess, kind of, Explain what that kind of looks like in practice, in reality? Sure.
1: Well, uh, what it involves is when you join a religious order, you have a, a, an initial year, which is basically a test. That year you have a, a great deal of silence, uh, not, not complete. I mean, we were allowed to speak during the evening most days. Uh, occasionally, if it was a special day, we, we would be allowed to talk during meals, but that wasn't very often. It was a, a very peaceful life. We, we got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. We had prayers. Uh, we had spiritual reading. Uh, we had work periods, uh, which, we, which were done in silence. I was in charge of the laundry there. I ran the laundry. Uh, but uh, most of the time was spent in the uh, chapel, either meditating or uh, reading or chanting. We had a, a book called a breviary, which is basically a book of uh, psalms, Tehillim. Uh, this was all in Latin in those days, and we used to chant uh, these uh, these psalms. Uh, we were in two we were in two choirs. So one, one choir would sing one line and then the other choir on the other side would sing the next line and we would go back and forth that way. And occasionally, we, we didn't really get out all that much, but occasionally we had a chance to go to to our lake house where we could go swimming or skating in the wintertime. We didn't really go into town or do anything like that. although. Uh, Boys will be boys and we would like we we liked any opportunity to get out. So we even went and donated blood so we would have a chance to get into town.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, through your calling to the the alphabet and through your, I guess, interest in the first five books of of the Bible at the time, um and, and you know, so many other things, you were really drawn to the idea of Judaism. Did you? When did you learn about Judaism as an idea and as a faith? Um, and when did you decide specifically to convert to it?
1: Well, the conversion idea didn't come for a long time because when I left there and I was uh, negotiating to go to a mo- more contemplative uh, order, uh, I got a letter from a someone I'd met in New York who was a convert from Judaism to Catholicism. And he had a guest at his house who was a priest from Israel. And he said, if you're interested in Judaism, why don't you come to Israel? Because we've got lots of Jews there. So I thought that was a great idea. And I started the ball rolling. Um, and you know, I had like uh, two passports because I was supposed to study in Amman and live in Israel. But in the very end, Uh, The bishop wanted a great deal of money from me, and I didn't have any money, so the plan sort of fell through, and I uh, just basically got a job. I started working in uh, sort of social work. I was volunteering in the black community, and I got the idea for converting because I was talking to a, a Jewish friend of mine, and we were discussing what we believed in, and at that point I had abandoned Christianity, I know I didn't consider myself a Christian anymore. And uh, I was kind of in a limbo. And he said to me, You sound more Jewish than me. I'm surprised you've never converted. And a little light went off. And uh, I went to the uh, church on the hill, that's uh, Holy Blossom Temple, the Reform uh, Shul, and signed up for a course. And um, before I even got around to taking one class, uh, my father in Nova Scotia got sick, and I was the only one who wasn't married and settled down, so I went back to Nova Scotia to look after him. and I sort of forgot about the whole thing for a while, but it was always in, sort of in the back of my mind, and it was many years later, and eventually I found myself in, in a Jewish family, as I told my my girlfriend, look, I'm. I've always thought about doing this. I'm going to do it, and she said, "Like you feel like doing it, go ahead." So I did. So I converted, and then uh, later, a year later, we were married. Conversion. I always felt sort of alienated by the um, the say, ethnic side of it. You know, I would go to shul, and people would be talking to me half in Yiddish and half in English, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, but uh, I eventually got used to it.
0: <laughs> I see. Well, that's fantastic. So, when did you? Uh, I understand you. You. You had your passports. Did you ever uh, make your way to Israel uh, during that initial period of time when you were when you you know before you moved on to uh, doing your social work in Halifax?
1: No, I didn't actually get here. I during the sixty-seven war, I went down to the Jewish agency and tried to volunteer, but they they just. Uh, sort of laughed me off, uh, didn't take me too
0: seriously. So when did you make your way here?
1: We got married in 1981. And in 1983, we were both self-employed and we decided to take an extended holiday for a couple of months. And when we were deciding where to go, I said, I've always wanted to come to Israel. Uh, let's, let's go to Israel. So we came here for two months. We rented an apartment in Jerusalem. And our intention was to travel around the country but we didn't do much traveling because we liked Jerusalem so much. We just couldn't leave. So we made up our minds to come and live in Jerusalem.
0: And you've been here ever since. Been here ever since, yeah. Wonderful. So in addition to your religious affiliation, as I understand, you are a member of the Freemason Society as served as a master of the the Lodge in Jerusalem for several years. Um, For many of us who are less familiar with the society, I understand that there's there's some uh, air of of secrecy and things that you can't tell us. but what can you tell us uh, about Freemasonry as a whole? And then I want to kind of delve into what it means in Israel?
1: Well, the Freemasons are a fraternal order, and that's about all I would really say about it. Uh, and uh, what i would what I would prefer to talk about is my relationship with Freemasonry. Absolutely. First of all, I've always been interested in it. Uh, A number of my ancestors were Freemasons in Nova Scotia, so it was always an interest that I had, and one of my friends here invited me to a lecture, and I went there, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I had conversations afterward with the lecturer who was a Freemason from England, and then they invited me to come to a a meal, which, which they have after the meeting, and I felt so um, welcomed and so at home in that group and to be quite honest the main reason that i joined was or one of the main reasons i joined was that in the lodges here unlike outside of israel we have jews and christians and muslims together and this is was an opportunity which i had never had before of being able to be not only to be able to sit down and talk to these people, but actually to be friends and to be brothers. Oh, by the way, we have a rule in Freemasonry uh, that it is forbidden to discuss politics or religion in the Lodge. Those are the two main reasons I think that people don't get along. So we really get along well together. Also, I'm I am very interested in Freemasonry uh, worldwide. So if you are a Freemason here, you can go anywhere in the world where there is a lodge. Just all you have to do is sh- show a card to prove that you're, that you've paid your dues and everything and that you're a good member and you're immediately accepted into that lodge as a brother. And I've been in lodges in, in Canada and the U S and, in Europe as well. And it's always the same situation. You go there, it's uh, come on in brother, welcome. And then of course, they love to talk to you. If they find out you're from Jerusalem, you're a star already (laughs) because a lot of our tradition is based on Israel, ancient Israel, the temple of Solomon and stuff. So they're always really quite happy. And, And so I really love that. The idea that I can go anywhere and have that acceptance.
0: I see. So there's kind of uh, an inherent, built-in, um, open-mindedness, I guess, uh, is what you're suggesting in the in the Freemason community in terms of you know you're not allowed to talk about uh, the two primary things that that cause people to to disagree. So in in that sense, you uh, you kind of have no reason not to get along. Yes, exactly. That's uh, that's really something. So. What, uh, I don't know, I don't want to tread on thin ice or anything, but how do your beliefs and your practices as a Freemason coexist with your Jewish beliefs and practices? Is there any kind of overlap that you can uh, express?
1: There isn't really an overlap, but there is no conflict. Um, I mean, there are secrets in Freemasonry, and you do take uh, obligations, vows, Uh, but none of that uh, interferes with your religious beliefs at all, no matter what your religion is. And as a matter of fact, in the world, in Israel, we have the three main Abrahamic faiths faiths involved, but in the outside world, there's also uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Zoroasterism, etc. We have an altar, which is used in our ceremonies and our rituals, and we put out um, a, a Christian Bible, a Tanakh, and a Quran. And if there's a candidate, for instance, being initiated or whatever, uh, the book of his religion is put in the center. There, there are a few problems arise. For example, the Catholic Church does not allow their members to be Freemasons. Uh, I'm sort of researching on that right now, and I. I have a feeling that it was all part of a huge misunderstanding a couple of hundred years ago, but there's nothing much one can do about it now because they stick with their guns and say, you're not allowed. Other than that, there's no no conflict whatsoever.
0: I see. So had you had you remained uh, a Catholic, there may have been some kind of friction, but uh, as it stands, you're, you're in the clear. Yes,
1: exactly. I'm, I'm perfectly okay. <laughs> well, the thing is that In my family, see, my my grandmother on my father's side was a a convert from the Protestant church. And in her family, all of the men and some of the women were involved in Freemasonry. As
0: I understood, there is a sort of a fraternal nature. Um, So what does it mean to have affiliation um, for a woman, for example, if I can ask?
1: The question of women in Freemasonry—it's very interesting because at the moment I'm uh, I'm transcribing and translating a pamphlet about that. It's called Universal Co-Freemasonry, and uh, there have been women in Freemasonry for you know a couple of hundred years, uh, but the main group of Freemasonry, what's called the Blue Lodge, the Grand Lodge, they don't permit women, but. There's no reason why women can't have Freemason lodges. Um, well, I should mention that one of the prerequisites of joining Freemasonry is that you have to believe in a, in a higher power. It's not too complicated. It's just, do you believe in God? Yes. Okay, you're in. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, you don't have to specify which form of God or whatever. Um, and in France, they have what's called the Grand Orient, where they accept uh, atheists and accept women. And they have lodges uh, which are mixed and they have lodges which are for women only. I, I mean, I support uh, the idea of having women in Freemasonry, uh, although I think that they should have separate lodges, um, just as I think that, that we have a Mechitza in our shul, you know, the same. Same sort of reason. There's no reason why women can't belong to Freemasonry. Even though you will have Freemasons who will say there's no such thing. You can't have a woman. And da da da. It it's not true. It just happens to be that in the the Grand Lodges we don't have we don't have women admitted. Uh, a few years ago we had a what was called the Great Debate here. A woman Freemason from England came, and we had a very big crowd and. Uh, there was a debate between her and the former Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Israel, and she got up and gave her talk, and then the the former Grand Master got up and basically agreed with everything she said, which was kind of a shock to all of us because um, you know there was no no debate; it was yes and yes. So they um, they took a vote. Uh, should women be allowed in Freemasonry? And it was uh, 100 to 1. And then should they have, should they join the same lodges? And it was unanimously no. Should they have their own lodges? Unanimously unanimously yes. So uh, people basically agreed with it. It's just that There aren't any women who seem to be interested in doing it.
0: Right. But do you think that there's some kind of, uh, I guess, barrier for entry in terms of uh, from the outside? It seems like very much, um, I don't know uh, if it's an appropriate term to to use in this situation, but kind of like a a boys club, right? So is there kind of... um, a, a limitation to the ability to, to join in and say, hey, I'm a woman and I'd love to be involved, um, if you don't know that there's this kind of uh, very accepting side to towards women?
1: Well, um, I'm not sure I understand that, but the idea of me- Freemasonry being a boys club, well, actually, boys club sounds, sounds a little bit like a, a, um, a put down. You're right. Uh, it is a fraternal organization. We're with people who agree with us, who have the same value system that we have. So already you're feeling comfortable there. People are screened, not everybody gets in. I mean, if somebody applies and we don't think that they would fit, we, we reject them. And they can reject us too. Uh, but it is, a you know, in a sense, a boys club, a fraternal organization, we get together, We socialize, we have rituals together, uh, we have meals together, we have a few drinks together, um, and uh, we love being together.
0: You're right. So first of all, I do apologize for using the term uh, boys club. In no way did I mean it as a pejorative. Um, <laughs>
1: no, I know, I know that. No, but a lot of people use that.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying that. For example, if I'm if I'm a woman and I say, you know, is there a kind of community that I can become a part of? I'm sure that there's kind of um, a a difficulty for me to even hear about uh, Freemasonry for women uh, as opposed to, I guess, other communities. So, so there are opportunities. Um,
1: oh yes, definitely opportunities. Yes.
0: Um, now you mentioned uh, before the interview. That you speak the international language of Esperanto. That's right. Um, kind of moving forward from from everything so far, I want to hear more about this uh, kind of facet of your of your journey. Um, can you tell me how you learned it and what it is in brief, and how you use it today?
1: Sure. Well, uh, the the way I found it was um, I had a, a high school teacher who was a very big influence on me and. After I had left uh, and, and all, actually done University, I went to visit him one day. While I was visiting him, his son was looking through some books and he said, "Oh, here's my Esperanto book." So I said, "What's Esperanto?" And his father told me it's an international language invented by this Jewish uh, uh, doctor, you know, back in the 1800s, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then his son started to read the book. And I understood, basically everything he said, because I had English, I had French through my mother, and I had a lot of Latin. And since Esperanto is based on romance languages, I understood practically everything he said. So I, I put that in the back of my mind. And the following year, I saw a book in the bookstore called Teach Yourself Esperanto. So I bought it and I read it, cover to cover. And I went and visited somebody and started speaking Esperanto. I mean, just like that. It's an extremely simple language. It's uh, uh, art, well, they call it artificial. It's constructed. And Zamenhof, uh, the inventor, the creator, was he was a genius, and he he made the the. Uh, the language incredibly simple he chose words that were known internationally he got rid of all the unnecessary grammar i mean there are only sixteen grammar rules and no exceptions at all um, all nouns end in o all adjectives end in a all adverbs end in e there's only six parts to a verb etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, it has a kind of a brotherhood attached to it that's somewhat like freemasonry And when I joined Freemasons, I mentioned this, that because I was an Esperantist, I already had this feeling of um, uh, brotherhood of man and universal justice and uh, world peace and stuff, because that's part of Esperanto. It's called the internal idea of Esperanto. And when people learn Esperanto, it isn't just to, to learn a language. If you go to a, a country, again, just like the Freemasons, if you go to a country and you find somebody who speaks Esperanto and that's not too difficult, uh, you're, you're like a family member to them. I often say, if I went to a village in the south of France and I said, who speaks English? And they say Henri. And I go to Henri and I say, you still say, that's nice if you say, who speaks Esperanto? And they say, Pierre. And you go to Pierre's house and you say, I speak Esperanto. He says, have you had lunch? (laughs) There is that kind of brotherhood. And I now have, well, I have friends in all over the world. In 2015, I was at a conference in France and I founded an organization called the International Freemason League. We are Freemasons who speak Esperanto. So there's even a bigger Bond than than the normal Freemasonry or Esperanto. Double the brotherhood. Double the, exactly. Double the brotherhood.
0: Well, that's uh that's really really you know thought provoking. Very very intriguing stuff. Um, I think we are uh, coming to a close here. But before we go, I want to ask: Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners about your unique story? Are there any other hidden gems you're hiding? Like, can you ride a unicycle or a juggle? Or
1: <laughs> well. I've been, I've been, a, I've been a vegetarian for 50 years. Uh, God bless you. <laughs> but no, I, I, um, I think I have a rather a unique story. Uh, and that's not really my making. It's just the way things happen. You know, that people often say, well, doors open for so-and-so. Well, my wife says, doors don't open for Yehuda. They fall off their hinges, <laughs> It always has seemed obvious uh, which road I should take, and so I ended up in a in a very comfortable spot where I'm very happy, uh, religiously and uh, and with my family and my community and everything. Right.
0: Well, thank you so much for for coming on and and sharing this with us. I think that uh, your story really gives a lot of color to. Um, you know, just the, the community that we have here in Israel. And, uh, and it was a pleasure to hear. So thank you well, so much. it was much.
1: a pleasure for me too. Nice meeting you.
0: From converting to Judaism over the course of many years to being part of a social order based in Jerusalem that many still don't understand, and that's by design, by the way, Yehuda's unique story and deep connection to Israel is fascinating. It truly goes to show that Israel has room for people of all backgrounds, drawn together for many reasons and for many inspirations. Thanks for listening. We're excited to keep the show going. If you have any suggestions for topics or people whose voices should be heard, drop us a line. You can find us on Facebook at il.underground, or you can send us a message on anchor.fm slash Israel-underground.
1: Israel Underground is written and produced by Eden and Zaki Hennessy. All additional audio is used under Creative Commons.